of gluten gratitude in my life is, uh, is uh, really good. Okay. So how many of you actually took me up on your challenge and did the, the prayer uh, thing even one time during break? Yeah? How many of you did it several times? <laughs> How'd it go? I really liked it. Like, I did it on Thanksgiving Day, because mm. I knew I was going to be seeing family, and I was going to be like, oh, Lord, I'm going to be doing this. going to be a good day, so I did that, and then, like, I got through the day, like, it was probably one of the easiest, like, my mom's side of the family, which we go, like, in the evening, like, that's really difficult, they're really difficult mm. to be around. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of oppression, a lot of plot, and so, but it was really easy just to get through, and I knew that was because the spirit and just because I gave that time and like be really close with y'all that that time just that hour of doing really nice. Yeah. It it does. It prayer forms you. And uh it's it's a lot easier to well, when we receive grace then we can uh, step into and live life the right way. I gotta look that up. There was a uh yeah 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 there is there is a um, Jonathan Edwards. Do you guys know who that is? He's a preacher from the Great from the uh, Great Awakening uh, in the early part of the of of this nation's history. He was a preacher that led a revival that sh- shook the entire nation, like changed it top to bottom. And there are some things about Jonathan Edwards that I'm not too I'm not greatly excited about. Um, the 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 one sermon that he preached that like is in your eighth grade textbook is "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," which I cannot I despise. Um, I, I I hate that it's in the textbook, and I hate that that's how the Great Awakening and Jonathan Edwards are remembered, because most of what Jonathan Edwards wrote about was joy. That was his primary subject, was joy, not hellfire. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. So, um, but there's this there's this quote from him that's been like stirring in my head for a couple of days, and it's this: grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. Okay. Grace is but glory begun, and glory is but grace perfected. Okay? I just want you to just sit in that for a second. Okay? Grace is the beginning of glory. It's glory that's begun its work in you. It's glory that's begun to be made manifest out of you. God's glory, the first glimmers of God's glory, that's grace but grace is leading you somewhere. And when we are glorified, as the, as the book of Romans says we will be, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also sanctified. I don't remember exactly how that goes. My, 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 my Bible study skills are off. But, uh, but he says, and those that he justified, he also glorified. Okay, that's the end of the process. We move from... Uh, being sinful, broken beings to being a people who perfectly reflect the glory of God. Um, and that's that's where we're all headed. And this idea that grace is glory begun 
and glory as grace perfected, that when grace has finished its work in you, you will perfectly reflect the glory of God. I think that's really good. Isn't that good? I'm not entirely sure why I was going to share that, but there you go. There it is. It's been bouncing around in my head for a bit. Uh, maybe it was Thanksgiving because Puritans, you know, where the, the pilgrims were Puritans. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan. I don't know. I don't. Maybe that's what it was. I don't know, but that's just been echoing in my brain for a while. Grace is but glory begun. It just feels like we're headed somewhere. You know, and this the grace of God is doing its work. Okay, let's pray, and then we'll... So, glory, we welcome you into this room, into our hearts. Holy Spirit, I will, don't think you have a problem with me referring to you as glory. It's who you are. And we welcome you. Come and be grace in us. Spirit of truth, come and eradicate falsehood. My request this morning is that we would see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus this morning. That we would catch a glimpse, that we would be, that our hearts would be uncovered, that the callous that's, that's built up over our emotions against, uh, our, against the reality of the word would be, would, would, would just be, removed in the name of Jesus, and that we would be a living, sensitive soul before you this morning, God, and that we would see your glory in the face of Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. I ask that you, Lord, would cut through the spirit of this age, would cut through the lens with which we view the world, that you would speak to us in a way that will sh shift us, shape us, that we would be made different this morning because we've seen something living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword this morning, that we've been, that we've been encountered by the same creative force that brought light out of darkness, that that, that that voice would be speaking inside of our souls this morning and that we would be the inheritors of a creative miracle, the partakers of divine nature, that steps forward would be made towards the glorification that you've promised to us, that we would be formed into the image of your Son. I don't want to leave this room the same as I walked into it.
Father, I ask you to forgive us for our constant box building, our constant system creating, our our never-ending habit of trying to nail you down and figure you out when you are living, when you are moving, when you are the I am, and you're way too big for us to ever fully comprehend. Give us the grace to experience you and to be shaped by you, but not to build an idol in our own minds, our own hearts, that says this is what Jesus looks like. Again, we just open our hearts to glory this morning. We open our hearts to the divine. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got to realize when we come to the Lord, when we come to God, this is God we're talking about. This is, this is the uncreated one. This is, this is the one who is all, all things that exist, exist within him. To think that we can wrap our puny mental arms around the, the reality of who he is and what he is and how he is, is foolishness. But still we do the same thing. We do it over and over and over again. We get one glimpse, a whiff of glory, and then we build a temple to the whiff. We build a system on uh, on a moment where we caught a glimpse, and we're like, we tell everyone all about that glimpse, and we 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 build this gigantic mental idol inside of our brains around that glimpse, and then the the truly fortunate unfortunate thing that happens is then we get another glimpse and it looks nothing like our temple. So we have to either choose the temple or tear it down chasing another glimpse. Does that make sense? We do it all the time. It's, and that's called spiritual growth. <laughs> and it's been my attempt for a while now to abandon my temple building, abandon my box building, abandon my, I, I just not going to say more about God than, than what I've seen. I'm not going to take what I, what I have seen and go beyond it. I'm just going to live in mystery and, and just fill in the blanks as I, as he shows them to me, but not say, well, because this blank says this and that blank says that, then the next blank must say this. Does that make sense? Are you guys flowing with me here? That's what the human brain loves to do. The human brain is a pattern recognizer and a pattern finisher. That's, by the way, why you get songs stuck in your head. Did you know this? The reason you get songs stuck in your head is because you hear a fraction of a song, or even if it's another song you hear, but you hear 
that a piece of that song in the other song, okay? And your brain, as the pattern recognition filter that it is, is locked in this loop of trying to complete the pattern you recognized, which is why you're always singing it. But I want you to think about when you have a song always stuck in your head, is it ever the whole song or is it just a piece of a song? And it's only a piece of a song, right? It's only a piece of a song. And if you could remember the rest of the song, it wouldn't be stuck in your head anymore because your brain recognizes that's a pattern that I've seen before. Complete the pattern, complete the pattern, complete the pattern. Okay? So I used to do mean, horrible things. When I first learned this, I used to, I was working at an insurance office and I would walk through this one room where underwriters would sit. There's four of them. And I would whistle half of a tune and then leave the room. (laughs) And yes, and then I would come back like 20, 30 minutes later and everyone's humming that tune or whistling the tune because I set their mind on perpetual loop. And I was like, this is so much fun. (laughs) No, I only did it a few times. You know, just whenever I was really bored. I didn't do it every day because they would have figured it out, I think. But uh, I, I only did it when I was really bored. And, uh, and I never told them either. They would come in and they'd be like, mm-hmm. They'd just be like, <laughs> Anyway, so we do that with God, too, where... We see a picture of him. We, see, we, we, we gain a revelation of who he is, whether it's from reading the word, for prayer, from the worship. And then we, we feel compelled to fill in the pattern, to complete the sentence. To, and the truth is, Jesus' rest of the sentence is probably different than you thought it was going to be. Jesus was always really good at that. He always did that, especially with the Pharisees. Jesus would start a sentence with them, wait till they finished it, and then be like, no, that's not what it is. He did that all the time. Or they would do that with him, and they would ask him to finish the sentence, and we'll know you're a good guy if you finish the sentence the way that we would. Jesus, what is the most important What is the most important uh, commandment in the law? And Jesus gave them the first half of the sentence was correct. Love the Lord your God, tell your heart, mind your soul, and your strength. And they're like, see, he really is one of us. But then Jesus goes, but the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they all went, whoa, 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 whoa. what? Well, that's not the rest of the sentence. The rest of the sentence is, so I am better than everyone else. That's the rest of the sentence. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I do that better than anyone. Therefore, I'm better than everyone else. That was their rest of the sentence. Jesus' rest of the sentence was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength, but you cannot do that without loving your, your, your neighbor as yourself. If you ever use love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength as a ladder to get yourself higher than someone else, you have stopped loving God. Which was just, you know, that was a nut punch to the Pharisees. <laughs> <sighs> Okay, and Jesus loved to do that. He loved to just he loved to just find their foundation and just erode it out from under them. <laughs> understand. Always understand. Never forget. 
that Jesus loved the Pharisees just as much as he loves you. We can't forget that. And so when you read the things that Jesus says to them and the way that Jesus interacts with them, you have to hear him loving them. And the only way to destroy the, the, the entrenchment of a religious spirit is to mock that religious spirit. You ready for this? If any of you in this room was at all offended by the whole nut punch statement, okay, the whole reason I used it was to offend your religious spirit. (laughs) This is the whole reason I used it. I'm not going to go all the way to profanity and that kind of thing, but I want to push on I won't, and there, but there are people that will. There are people that will. They're specifically out hunting the religious spirit, so they will do things. They will say things that are truly offensive because they're trying to get at the religious spirit, and I don't know that the, I'm not okay with that, with going that far. But I will say things that are a little too earthy for church. Do you know what I mean? Okay? And I will do that on purpose because I want to just pull some – I want to pull some of the foundation out from under that religious spirit they've got. Because here's the truth. If, you're, if your religion isn't earthy, it's worthless. That's how I feel about it. You want to know how I know that? Because Jesus became a human. Jesus pooped. Jesus had B.O. Jesus hung out with... It's just, I'm just being honest with you. It's truth. <laughs> And Jesus did that so that he could put God in that context and say, guess what? God was already in this context and you've elevated him out of this context. So I'm putting him back in this context because this is where he belongs. Did you have a question or were you just fixing your, without getting sugar on your glasses? Um, (laughs) I understand. I really do. <laughs> my my oldest son Isaac used to he he loves potato chips and French fries, anything potato. He, he he's still to this day just huge fan, and it may be the Irish blood. I don't know, but still. But he was kind of a neat freak when he was a little kid, so he would only eat with his right hand, and he would like keep the other hand like up here. So he would eat potato chips like this. <laughs> so classy. Just, just always like this, just never, and then you know, he's, so he's only greasying one hand. Just, you know. <laughs> All right, we are in Philippians chapter one. We're going to attempt to finish the first chapter today. Shouldn't be that difficult, although twenty, the verse twenty-seven, which is where we're starting. Is 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 got a lot to unpack, so let's jump in there. But I think it's connected to what we've been saying. So that says, for Philippians one verse twenty-seven, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I'm going to read that again. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, 
so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Okay, whenever the Apostle Paul says something like, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, that is a great statement. It has been used to, to, to work atrocities in the world over and over again. What does that mean? Well, that obviously means that your hair shouldn't be very long. That obviously means that women should not wear pants. It obviously means, okay, that kind of statement has been used in evil ways by power by people who wanted power and control. Okay, you're not conducting yourself in no manner worthy of the gospel. But the Apostle Paul didn't want it to be used that way, okay? So he told us what it means. In the verse, this is what it means to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay? Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what it means. He gives it to us right there. All right? So let's break some of this down. So when we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, it will gain a reputation. Okay, because he says, whether I'm with you or not, I will hear of you. Okay, there's a, from the Barnes uh, uh, commentary I wrote down, the gospel is not a thing of nothing, nor is it intended that it should ex exert no influence on its friends. In other words, the gospel will cause you to be different than people who aren't living in the gospel. Okay, it exerts influence on its friends. Those who who have received the good news, will live like they believe it. And this is what it looks like. So first of all, if you're living in a manner worthy of the gospel, it will gain a reputation. He says, uh, that, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you. The gospel causes a stir. It gives people a reputation. People are going to talk about you. They're going to see something and they're going to hear something and they're going to feel something and they're going to say, that's different. That's not like everybody else. There's something going on there. Now, I want to be want to warn you. Sometimes they're going to be really offended by what the gospel has wrought in you. That was what was going on with Jesus and the Pharisees over and over again. They were offended. By Jesus' freedom, by Jesus' authority, by Jesus not caring at all about what their opinion of him was. That made them angry. Have you ever seen, how many of you know who Andy Kaufman was? Anyone? Oh, man. Okay. There was a movie that Jim Carrey made about Andy Kaufman that was released a few years ago called Man in the Moon. But there was this, he was a, he was, I can't even call him a comedian. He was this weird, weird guy. And his, people call it comedy, but it's hard to call it comedy. What he wanted to do was he wanted people to see what he was doing and not know what to make of it all the time. 
So he would do things like he would he would host like he was going to be up on stage. He was going to be doing a comedy show and people would show up because he had done things like the TV show Taxi and he'd been in a couple movies and, and he would show up and they would walk, walk into the theater and then on the stage would be a wrestling thing, like a wrestling mat. And he would come out and he would invite women from the crowd onto the stage to wrestle them. Yes. He's a, and if men were like, I want to wrestle, he'd be like, I don't want to wrestle men. I just want to wrestle women. Okay, exactly. And that's what he wanted. He was trying to be creepy. He was trying, he was trying to mess. He, he had this alter ego called Tony Clifton that would sometimes show up when Andy was supposed to be there and Tony would be there and he would sing these songs and he would be incredibly vulgar, incredibly horrible. He would, everyone hated him. He would do horrible things, but they didn't know. They all thought it was Andy. So they would kind of laugh like, oh, I get the joke. I get the joke and you don't. But then there were times when he would hire someone else to be Tony Clifton. And in the middle of Tony Clifton's thing, when everyone thinks Tony Clifton is actually Andy Kaufman, Andy Kaufman would walk on stage and be like, oh, hi, guys. And he'd be like, wait a minute. He's supposed to be Andy Kaufman. And he, he was like, hey, see you later. And they would just walk off. And so he would pull like this whole weird thing where he would turn people's expectations on their heads. Okay, and, and now Andy most of the time did it in an extremely offensive and vile way. But when the gospel comes in, that's why the Bible says that the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's a stone of it's a foolishness to the Gentile. Because whenever the cross comes into the situation, people are going to be confused. People are confused because okay, Western civilization we worship success. That's what we do. We worship success. Okay, that's that's that's. That's how we make it our way through the world. And the people that we love and the people that we honor and the people that we lift up are the ones who have things figured out, who have been successful in accomplishing great things, who made a lot of money, who have, okay, those are the famous people. Those are the people we all look towards. Those are the people we want to be like, okay? But here's Jesus, homeless most of his adult life, was executed for a crime he didn't commit. Okay, that flies right in the face of the worship of success in Western culture. And when we start saying it is the loser who wins, the, our culture goes, excuse me, what? So we have to make gold crosses and we have to dress the cross up and we have to be like, no, really, Jesus was winning as he died on the cross. And, and in a real way, he was. But at the same time, he was truly losing. He was absolutely losing. He went up against power and power won. Okay, and in our culture to even say that feels offensive. Are any of you feel slightly offended by my statement right now? That Jesus lost? Does that hurt you just a little bit? Come on, be honest. It does, right? Because we sing about the cross, our victory. Da, 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 da. Why? Why do we write those songs? We write those songs because we worship success. And if we can't worship Jesus unless he was successful. But Jesus had no money. In his lifetime, he was not very famous. And then he was killed. Yeah. 
The cross turns our, our expectations on its head. That Jesus did that on purpose. He was constantly walking in and going, you think this is one thing, but actually, ta-da, it's something else. And everybody would be like, what? That's why Jesus looked at his followers and said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And they all went, excuse me? <laughs> he had a huge crowd that was following him. He had just fed 5,000 people. There's this movement going on. Things are bebopping. He's about to have his own podcast, his own <laughs> website. Jesus is going to be on Christian TV. It's going to be crazy. The record deals alone for this particular Jesus album. Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be massive. And everybody's feeling this energy, right? And then Jesus stands up, looks right at the paparazzi and says, cannibalism, that's the way to go. <laughs> and everybody's like, whoa. And so most people left. Almost everyone left except for the 12. And they're all standing there. And Jesus turns around and goes, are you leaving too? And Peter gives the, this beautiful answer, which I love, which he goes, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. And Jesus is like, you got it. He meant to offend them. He wanted regular everyday people to be like, I don't know about that guy. It was on purpose. I've often wondered if I should start doing things like that in my sermons. <laughs> <laughs> my board might have a problem with it you need to be more welcoming <laughs> I'm not Jesus so we'll just let Jesus be offensive and I can be the nice guy I really wanted to I, I'm always toying around with book ideas like ideas about books that I would like to write at some time in the future who knows when Maybe tomorrow, maybe 30 years from now. I don't know. But one of them I want to write, I always come up with catchy titles and then that's kind of it. <laughs> one of them I want to write is called Jesus Was Not a Nice Guy. Can you imagine people picking the, what? <laughs> because Jesus was purposefully offensive on regular basis. But it was always because, it was always out of a place where offending the person that he was choosing to offend was loving them more than being nice to them. And that, especially in our culture, which is so offense phobic. Oh, I don't want to offend anyone. And people get like thrown under the bus because they're offensive because they've offended someone. How dare they? Jesus would have been so countercultural in our day. But Jesus was countercultural in any culture he would have existed in because Jesus was himself. Jesus was not what the world wanted him to be. And that's who Jesus always was. And that's who Jesus is today. Jesus is himself. Wildly offensive for the sake of love. When we live out a life that looks like Christ's, we will be the same. 
And we will say things and do things that rub our culture in a completely wrong way. And people will be angered by it. That's when you know you've done something right. I just like this place of subversiveness. I just enjoy it. I, am, I love to be like, hey, spirit of our age, you don't get to control me. <laughs> I love it. I love divine rebellion. <laughs> Not rebellion against God, but rebellion as I'm stepping into agreement with God and I'm rebelling against the culture in which I live. I love it. Let's break this thing. Let's crush it. Let's take the idols of church culture and just crap all over them. Love it. Let's do it. That's why I love to get up on Christmas and talk about how Jesus wasn't born on December 25th and how the whole celebration of Christmas is just, we've just taken a pagan holiday and converted it and tried to make it into a, I love it because it's truth and people are like, but Christmas is special. And I'm like, no, it's not. And if you hate Halloween, you should hate Christmas just as much because Christmas is the same thing. So is Easter. Agree. Easter is as well. Now, should we celebrate the fact that Jesus became a man? Absolutely, we should. And if that's what you're doing, I, I will stand behind you and cheer with all of my heart. And if Christmas is about God-loving man, yes. Yes, fine. Take this opportunity to do that. Let's do that every day, okay? And do I have a Christmas tree up in my house? I do. I absolutely do. But I also take my kids trick-or-treating. So let's keep going. There is a statement made of Peter and Peter and John. Remember when they went to the temple at the time of prayer and they healed the guy and and uh, and you know the man at the beautiful gate and and he was leaping and jumping and. You know, praising God. Anybody remember that song? Walking and leaping and praising God. Anybody remember that? Anyway, Pastor Barry would be right there with me on it. Um, <clears throat> after that, the rulers of the temple were like, took Peter and John inside the, the, the Sanhedrin and they're like, you caused a riot. Which, again, it was another time where gospel smacked into culture and culture was like, how dare you? I just, I love it. It's like the same thing when Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath. Jesus was being intentionally offensive. You need to understand that. Jesus was picking on, it's like, I, you know what? It's, it's Friday. Can I heal you tomorrow? Because tomorrow's the Sabbath. And then I can not only heal you, but I can make a point, right? Okay. <laughs> it was, Jesus did it all the time where he would, in fact, there's, there's a couple places where Jesus sees the Pharisees like coming and then he's like, Hey, and then he would heal some guy and be like, Hey, it's the Sabbath and I just healed this guy. <laughs> 
the Pharisees would be like, how dare you? And Jesus would just be like, ah. It's the, the only way to, to kill a religious spirit is to mock it. I'm telling you, Jesus was really good at it. But anyway, they take Peter and Peter and John into the Sanhedrin. They question them, and they've got really good things to say. And then there's this line, this line that I want to be spoken of me, this line that I really, I, I, I want people to say this about Josh, and it's this. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. I want that to be said about me. I want, people, I want people to be like, well, you know, he has spent time with Jesus. Oh, that's why he, there's, that's why there's so much trouble. That's why, that's why these guys are, you know, that's why these guys are smarter than they should be. They hung out with Jesus for the last three years. Okay. I want that. I want that. I want people to say that about me. I want people to, I want to have the reputation of a guy that has spent time with Jesus. That's what I want. There's this, uh, when, when Gabriel tells John the Baptist's father that John the Baptist is on the way. John the Baptist's father, I think his name is Zacharias, is like, how do I know that these things will take place? Gabriel says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I'm like, ooh. Because his authority doesn't come from the fact that he's an archangel. He's a, a stinking archangel. He's in the Holy of Holies. He's like all glorified. Like, oh! And, it, and he doesn't look at Zechariah and be like, "Are you? do you see these wings? No, that doesn't. No. What he says is his authority is, his, his whole basis of authority for the statement that he just made is, I stand in the presence of God. Let that be our authority. Let that be our reputation. Let that be what people say about us. Well, whatever else you have to say about that person, they've been with Jesus. They stand in the presence of God. Let it be known. So, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel will gain us a reputation. Number two, it will last. The things that we do will last. See, it says, and we will last. It says, it says, I will hear of you. That's the reputation. That you're standing firm. We'll stand firm. I can't tell you what it means to me. We have three worship teams at our church. My wife and I lead one. And then there's these two other younger couples that that lead. And I got a message from one of those couples this last week that said, please pray for us. We just had a miscarriage. And this they don't have any kids right now, so this would have been their first. And I can't imagine. I've been, we've, Rachel and I had a miscarriage multiple years ago. And it is a crushing, crushing because you're just beginning to get hope about this new life that's coming into your world. And you begin to think about what your life's going to be like and how much things are going to change. And, and oh my gosh, it's a baby. And then, you know, it just gets taken away. 
that they were supposed to be leading worship on Sunday. And originally he had said, I may, we, we may ask that other couple to lead worship on Sunday because this is just hard. And I showed up on Sunday morning and this couple that had miscarriage were standing on the stage. And you know what they were singing? You are good. You're good. Oh, I lost it. Because here is faith standing firm. That they would be able to stand on that stage in front of our church and sing and lead us in singing, He's good. He's good. Even with broken hearts. I'm not saying that they were better. They weren't better. I talked to them. But they, and nobody in the congregation except for me and their parents knew what they'd been through. But there they are, standing with broken hearts on that stage and singing, He's good. And stirring us to sing, He's good. Even though they're in a moment that they don't understand. The gospel stands firm. The gospel's not swayed or broken or destroyed by. What my pastor, when I was a kid, prior to my dad, would have called the vicissitudes of life. I know, right? People say, I have a big vocabulary. I mean, that's, that's a word nobody <laughs> Just means the bad circumstances, the bad things that happen. No, let me tell you, my, my God informs me about my circumstances. My circumstances don't inform me about my God. And that's what the gospel does. The gospel stands in the midst of the worst possible imaginable moments. The gospel stands when people are taking your things out of your home and burning them in the street, which is what happened to the Philippian Christians at one point. Their leaders were dragged off to jail and the people of the city walked into their homes, took all their stuff out of their homes and burned them in the street. And yet, the gospel stands firm. The gospel stands firm when your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your pastors are being taken to the Colosseum and fed to the lions. The gospel stands firm. The gospel stands firm. The gospel stands firm no matter what's going on. Because this is still true even when life really sucks. So, when we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, it'll gain a reputation. It'll stand firm. The next phrase is with one mind. So God will, uh, living in a, in, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, creates a community that is unified. In one spirit, with one mind. Okay, so, I mean, that's what, <clears throat> I will hear, I will hear of you, number one, that you're standing firm, number two, in one spirit, with one mind. In one spirit, with one mind. Calvin said this, 
God requires a twofold unity of spirit and soul. The first is that we have like views, so we think the same way. The second, that we will be united in heart. For when these two terms are connected together, spirit, uh, when these two, what, what are you doing, Calvin? I wrote this down because it was good, but when these two terms are connected together, spirit denotes the understanding while soul denotes the will. Farther agreement of views comes first in order, and then it springs from a union of inclination. In other words, we begin by believing the same thing, and we finish by feeling the same way. Does this, does this make sense? We begin by believing the same thing. So we believe that this is true about Jesus, and because we believe this is true about Jesus, we have the same heart towards the world, the same heart towards each other, the same heart towards God, the same heart towards ourselves. This is something I'm constantly saying to my church body. Emotions are products of perspective. Please hear this, because your generation is more controlled by their emotions than any generation in the history of the world. I love you, but this is truth. And for most of the people in your generation, if I feel it, it's true. Do you agree with me on that? Okay. That's wrong. That's wrong. If I feel it, it must be true. Wrong, 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 wrong. Emotions are born of perspective. They're born of what you think is true will form your emotions. The way that I prove this, okay? Imagine that you walked into this room and Preston was lying on the floor in a pool of what looks like blood. Okay? Some of you would rejoice. Some of you would be sad. So, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Would you see this? You'd be shocked. You'd be afraid. You'd be like, what's going on? Oh my gosh. Right? And then Preston like sits up and looks at you and goes, gotcha. <laughs> now, let me ask you. In that first moment when you walked in the room and you saw him lying there, your perspective of him was something terrible has happened. Correct? That's your perspective. And your emotions matched your perspective. Correct? But was that what was true about him? What was true about him was that he was playing a joke. Okay? That's what was true about him. What was true about him is he's just fine. He's a little sick, but he's just fine. Okay? What was true about him? So, when your perspective of Preston changed, did his situation change? His situation remained the same. His actual truth of his situation remained the same, but your perspective changed. And what did it do to your emotions? When your perspective of him changed, what did it do to your emotions? It changed your emotions. Perspective, the way we see the world, is what forms our emotional reality. The way we think about a thing is what tells us how to feel about that thing. What we see to be true is what gives us emotions about what is true.
But we like to flip those around. We like to say, I feel this way, therefore this must be true about that thing. Let's bring it to a little more practical example. Okay? Someone says something, you hear it, and you think, I cannot believe they said that about me. I cannot believe they said that. You're hurt, you're wounded, you're upset. And then you talk to them and they say, oh my gosh, I did not mean it like that at all. I meant this. Now your feelings toward that person were all based not upon what they actually wanted to communicate. They're based on what you heard. They're not based on truth. They're based on experience. They're based on perspective. So, when you're looking at your world, when you are walking around in the world, you need to be thinking about what is my perspective of this thing. A bad thing happens to you. Something you don't understand happens to you. Your perspective will decide how you feel about that thing. Now, because our minds work faster, because our internal chemistry and, you know, the, 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 the background programming of your brain works faster than your conscious mind. Are you, does that make sense to you? Okay. You have a whole mind that you aren't fully aware of. There's, Lots of neurons firing. You're not completely aware of all of that. You're aware of what your mind presents to you. Okay? It's like the idea of, you know, music that's going on in the background. Eventually you don't hear it. Or that smell that's in the room that you don't smell anymore. But then you leave for a while and you come back and you can smell it again. Are you with me? Does this make sense? It's because your brain specifically chooses what stimuli it's going to present to your conscious mind. Okay, there's a whole lot of that stuff going on. All right? And so and your mind works much faster than your 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 actual mind works much faster than the screen of the conscious mind that that you're experiencing at any given moment. Does this make sense to everyone? I feel like I've lost a couple of you. Are you with me? Okay? The reason I'm saying this is because your limbic system, your emotions are part of that background noise. And your emotions come to conclusions faster than your conscious mind does. That's why when you see something happen, your emotions respond like that. And then your conscious mind starts giving you explanations as to why you were afraid by that thing. Does this make sense to everyone? Okay. I'm saying this because when you hear things, boom. Your, your emotion system is going to come to a conclusion faster than your conscious mind will. And even when that person explains to you, no, I didn't mean it like that, I meant it like this, your emotions still aren't entirely convinced. Your conscious mind has to work backwards and unconvince your emotional system that that's not what they meant, and I've got to give them the benefit of the doubt, et cetera, et cetera. Does this make sense to you? Okay? So you're always going to come into situations, and your emotions are going to come to a conclusion faster than your conscious mind. So you're not going to be able to meet to, to
to set the table for yourself to stay in the right perspective all the time. It's very hard to do. So when something happens that you deem as bad, that you deem as difficult, your emotions are going to respond immediately. But you don't have to live in the, in the first perception that your emotions gave you. You can then work backwards and shift the way you feel about a thing by changing your perspective of that thing. And the emotion that arises, that negative emotion that arises, fear, worry, anger, those kind of negative emotions that arise, okay, are an alert to your conscious mind that your perspective of that thing is incorrect. Because the Bible says that God's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So when you are afraid, you have a wrong perspective. Does this make sense to everyone? Okay. You get that bill that comes in the mail. You open it up and you think, Oh, where is this going to come from? Your whole emotional system starts going, ding, 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 ding. Panic, 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 panic. Your fight and flight kicks in. That flop sweat jumps on your head and you're like, <laughs> you know, that's what you, your body just goes there automatically. Your limbic system just jumps to this place of panic instantly. You're like, <laughs> but then your conscious mind can go, whoa. I'm entitling my Advent uh, sermon series, Pump the Brakes. <laughs> no, but maybe. <laughs> I have a feeling he's mad at me right now. On his birthday, I posted the video of him singing the, the I Bust the Window at Your Car Chicken song, and he hasn't said one thing to me about it. <laughs> I think you might be a little annoyed that I still have that video. Anyway. <laughs> when your emotions start going crazy like that, our response needs to be, out of our conscious mind, no, er, stop. And I need to reassert God's perspective on this bill. And not... My emotion, not my bank account's perspective on this bill, not my, not my emotional system's perspective on this bill. No, I'm going to reassert God's perspective on this bill. So I'm going to work backwards and say, he shall provide all my needs according to the, his glorious riches. That's what the Bible says. Right here it is. Jesus, you got this taken care of. Help me believe it. Amen? Does this make sense to you? Trust me, this is a conversation the Lord and I have on a regular basis where anxiety will just go, boop, just pop up its ugly little head, and I'll be like, ah, 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 ah. I, do, I do not cooperate with that perspective. I'm going to choose another way of thinking about that. And I have to work backwards. I have to walk my way out of where my, where my emotions went. Okay? Your understanding of truth comes, is where your emotions come from, which is why unity between the body of, in the body of Christ begins with truth. It begins with believing the same things. Because when we have the same understanding as each other, then we will, we will respond emotionally as one. Does this make sense? Let's all stand up and stretch a minute. Thank you.
I'm just, I'm just, I'm just catching, I'm just catching gay, uh, uh, some glaze. There's some glaze. I'm catching gaze. Are you worried? Um. All right. Yeah. Just get the blood flowing and then you can sit down again. All right. I didn't catch a I didn't catch a whiff of homosexuality, but I did catch a whiff a whiff of homophobia. Hmm, that's interesting. All right. Okay. Everybody okay? All right. Thinking alike comes before feeling alike. Thinking alike comes before feeling alike. One of the reasons I gave you that uh, that liturgy that I gave you last time we were together is because your brain uses words to think. Okay? Your brain uses words to think. All right? It's been proven that if you do not have language for a concept, you cannot understand the concept. The concept of a concept. How meta. Do you conceptualize concepts? Yes or no? Anyway, unless you have a word for a thing, this is why I'm constantly fighting for bigger vocabularies. Because if you don't have a word for a thing, you can't understand a thing. You need more words. You need a bigger vocabulary. You need to use words like vicissitudes. Okay? Because I can use a sentence to say that, or I can use one word to say it. Which would you rather? Usually I end up doing both, but that's because I'm trying to expand your vocabulary. And I'm trying to, to give you more tools to use in your head. Words are important. I don't know why I was saying that now. Thinking, okay, I gave you that liturgy. That's why, that's where I was coming from. I gave you that liturgy because your brain uses words to think. You think in words. And if you have the same words running around in your brain, it's going to help you think the same. That's why they make kids recite the Pledge of Allegiance. We have to indoctrinate our little Americans. I saw the creepiest thing ever. I went to one of my kids' kindergarten classes, okay? And the bell rings... And all of the kids immediately got to their seats and sat with their hands folded in their laps. And the teacher steps out and they start saying this little poem thing together. And then, and they were moving at the same time. It was creepy, creepy, <laughs> creepy. They're like, I take my hands above my head. Da, da. And they start walking across the room to sit down on a carpet and sit down and fold their hands together. And I was just like... <laughs> I have never seen kindergartners 
that well-behaved in my life. Not one of them was fidgeting. Not one of them. They all just fell into this pattern. Okay. It was very creepy, but I have to admit at the same time, my respect for that kindergarten teacher like shot through the roof. I was like, this is amazing. I wanted to be like, can you teach me how to use this? And I was like, it was like Pavlov's dogs. It was like, ding, and they're salivating. I don't know what happened. It's so weird. But anyway, so I, I bring that to, because when we have common language, we will think the same way about things. Okay, like uh, there's this one There's this one lady at our church. Most of the people at my church are not even really aware that we're a part of the Assemblies of God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I that we are, and I'm, it's not like it's a secret, you know. Um, and whenever I do membership classes, I talk about the history of the Assemblies of God, and sometimes on Sundays I do as well. But the Assemblies of God is not on the name of our church anywhere. Never has been from before me. I, that's... That's, and, uh, and, but there is a person in our church, a young lady in our church who grew up at Souls Harbor. And so, uh, I will every once in a while, I'll just be like, look over her and be like, put on the garment of praise for that. She's like, ah, revival. <laughs> like, you know, just like, just different ancient assembly of God things that we just connect on. And like, nobody else in the church gets it. You know, like one, there was one Sunday morning where we were worshiping and we get to the end. It was just this kind of joyful time. And I was just like, uh, and, and I just played this chord and, and I was like, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. And she started singing it really loud. <laughs> and like two other people in the congregation, everybody else was like, what's this new song? <laughs> you know, everybody loved it. It like went over crazy, but it was just like. I was going back to this moment as a kid where I was singing that song and the Holy Spirit was moving in a crazy way and I was just connecting with, wow, this, this song that I've been singing my whole life like actually has a, has a context where it makes sense. And, that was, and, and on this Sunday, that same feeling was there and so I went right back to that song. And for me, that was a cultural touchstone that had me thinking in the same way that I did when I was a kid because language creates culture. It helps us to think the same way. And because... This young lady and I both grew up in a rather traditional Assemblies of God church. You know, we both have some of these cultural touchstones. We share them, and so we think the same way about certain things. There's also things that I have to go to her and be like, I know the AG programmed you to think like this, but this is what the Bible actually says about that. And she's like, oh my gosh, I never thought about it that way. Like, I know, right? Because I'm the same way. Because like, you know, the Lord had to awaken me to, to the fact that my cultural conditioning in that particular place was incorrect. When, and uh, I feel like the Lord's always doing that for me. <laughs> for instance, and I think I've talked to you about this before, but uh, when Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches, he that... He that, you know, remains in me will bear much fruit. Okay. What's the fruit? When I was a kid, my whole life, I was taught that the fruit was people getting saved. My whole life, that's what I was taught. That this, if you remain in Jesus, many people will get saved. That that's the fruit that Jesus was talking about in that statement. That is wrong. It's just plain wrong. Jesus was talking about his 
character and nature. He was talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the very fruit of the Spirit. In fact, that's probably why the Apostle Paul called it the fruit of the Spirit. He was pointing back. There's so many times the Apostle Paul had, was very well versed in the teachings of Jesus. And there's so many places where the Apostle Paul is hinting back at something Jesus said. And if you're paying attention, you can hear it. You can hear the, care, the language of Jesus carried forward into Paul. And it's like, ooh! And so then you can, you can study those two passages of Scripture at once and be like, this is, this is where Paul has been mentored by Jesus and now he's bringing it back to us. It's a beautiful thing. But he starts calling it the fruit of the Spirit. He was pushed, he was pointing back at John 15 and saying, bear much fruit, this is that. Okay, but my whole life I was taught different. And that sucks. So I try and relieve people of their illusions every once in a while. It's one of my favorite things to do. Okay. We have to learn to think alike. And when we do, our emotions will align. Okay, if you ever want to be totally freaked out, I want you to spend time thinking, looking at Hitler's early days and the, the early days of the Nazi party in Germany. Because within five, six years, you go from a fairly regular group of people in Germany to a group of people that would allow something like the Holocaust without saying anything about it, but they knew full well it was going on. And look at the kind of cultural shift that takes place. Look at the levers that, that Hitler was using to move the people from one thing to another. And then watch how a presidential election unfolds in this country. Okay, it is frightening. Frightening. But we can use that same power the way that God wants it to be used, and that's to make people more like Jesus. When we start using the same words, one of the things that Hitler did over and over again, and many, many other cultures have done it, but I'm not allowed to use George W. Bush as an example because that might make somebody mad. Where... We shift, we change the word about something so that it no longer means what it actually means. Okay, we change it, we give it a new, a new flavor because we just change up the language just a little bit. And everybody is like, I'm totally behind that. Okay. For instance, I mean, everybody's always trying to do this to you. What's the difference between a undocumented worker and an illegal alien? Think about it. There's no difference. They're the same things. But if you're a Democrat, you want to call them undocumented because you want them to stick around and you want them to be a part of this nation and you want to, you want to help them to become citizens, but if you're a Republican, they're illegal aliens. Okay, illegal equals bad. Alien equals different than us. Different, different, different. Alien, they're from outer space. 
Okay. Undocumented worker means the only thing standing between them and me is a piece of paper. Do you see? But when we're talking about undocumented workers or illegal aliens, we are talking about the same group of people, are we not? But the way you talk about them changes the way you think about them. And if you use the same words over and over and over again, it's going to change the way you feel about them permanently. So I'm always for creating new language in the church for, old, for things that, you know, old things, beautiful things, but we need to create new language for them because the old words, the, there's a term that's used in the media, freighted. They're freighted. They carry a lot of baggage. That word carries a lot of baggage. Illegal alien carries a heck of a lot of baggage. There's a lot of baggage just on that word. It's a freighted word. Okay? There's, there's a lot of words like that right now, especially right now. Because you've got all of these people in the media who would absolutely despise our president and are doing everything they can do with the power of their words to make him look like an idiot, to make him look like he doesn't know what he's doing, to make him look like a jerk. Your opinion of President Trump, whatever it may be, that is what they are trying to do. <laughs> Even if, you know, I didn't vote for the man and I don't like him, I'll just be honest with you. But he is the President of the United States. I mean, the office itself deserves respect. That's why I will not refer to him as Trump. He is President Trump, and that's the truth. Whether I'm happy about that or not has nothing to do with it. Okay? He is the President of the United States, and I will afford his office respect. The Bible also tells me I need to pray for my leaders and, you know, that kind of stuff too. But our words, when we begin to think alike, we'll begin to feel alike. How many of you have caught yourself speaking like someone else in this group? <laughs> and you're like, no, it's good. Yes, it's good. It just. <laughs> oh, I love it. It just makes me laugh. I love it. It's beautiful. It's called, you're aligning, aligning. I hear myself falling into the same speech patterns as my wife, and I'm like, no! I will not. But I also find myself falling into, like, speakers and, like, people that I listen to on a regular basis. There's this, there's this very Canadian guy that I've been listening to a lot, okay? And so I've started calling him God. Oh, no. Like I just, I just came out. I was preaching, and I was like, "But God thinks." And I went, "Oh my God!" <laughs> like I'm sorry, I've been listening to a Canadian preacher a lot, and so, and that's that's how he talks. It's like that, you know, Jesus, like God. Okay, we're supposed to rub off on each other. That's how it's supposed to work. And if you're speaking alike, you're going to think alike. That's how, that's how this works. And the gospel, when it enters into a culture, begins to shape our language and our thought patterns, which will then shape our emotions. Yes. 
because that's the soil in which you were planted. I have my dad's exact cough. It's weird for me. And every time I cough, I'm like, Dad? But then there are things because not only will you react in concert with someone else, but you will also you will also do things specifically to not sound like them. I, we did we played uh, this game, you know, uh, on Thanksgiving. My my sister who lives in Colorado is here in Fort Wayne uh, for Thanksgiving. They're leaving tomorrow, and. Um, and uh, we've been hanging out at my parents' house, all of us, and I wanted to play a game. So I sent every, I emailed everyone a list of, que- a survey of 20 questions, and then we played Family Family Feud, where they were the ones who answered the questions, and then I was asking, you know, so it was stupid stuff like, who's your favorite Disney princess, that kind of thing. And then, so we did it two different ways. We did kind of the, you know, the survey says kind of thing, where it's like, would whoever has the most popular answer wins that particular thing. But then we switched it on its head a little bit and said, who on the other team answered this? Answered Ursula as their favorite Disney villain. Who is it over there? Okay, so, and so they had to try and figure that out. But anyway, one of the things I said was, one of the things I said was, what is the most frequently used phrase from the First Assembly pulpit? Yeah. <laughs> that was that was purposely mean. That was I was I was trying to get us to make fun of my dad. That was what I was trying to do. And that's exactly what was the number one answer. Be kind to one another in the parking lot. Okay. And that was like, oh, I'll you. That one was next. That was the second one. Yes. Absolutely. And I loved it because the truth is my dad has no clue that he's doing that joke every week. He doesn't understand it. <laughs> How many of you have had this happen to you? Oh, well, all two of us. That's great. You know, like it's just this joke that he uses. Oh, all two of you. How many of you remember the sermon from last week? And then like one person was that. Oh, all two of you, you know. He does it almost every week. Almost every week. Okay. That's, that's one of my dad's. Classic sayings, all two of you. Okay. Even when he's not there, people say that. What? Be kind to one another? Of course, you have to. (laughs) Why? Because language creates culture, and that's a culture that's been created here. And we have those, we have rituals, they make us feel comfortable. They make us feel like we belong because I'm in on that joke. Okay? It's a beautiful thing, and and it should be happening in the church all the time. Let's continue to move forward. My phone is ringing again. Go away. Okay, so I've spent a lot of time on that one, but I think it's important. On the understanding that language creates culture, we need to think alike, and we need, as we learn to think the same, we will learn to feel the same. What is that? Is it? It's really loud. Okay. So, for behaving, behaving according to the gospel will gain us a reputation. It will stand firm. We will be unified. And 
uh, number four, we would be striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are all working hard, striving. A real effort to be given to learning to love God and love people. That's what the gospel creates. It creates a people who are intentional about loving God and loving each other. Are you intentional about loving God more today than you did yesterday? That's my question for you. We should be. Jesus said there's two commandments. There's really only two. Love God, love each other. These are the two greatest commandments. Hello, these are them. And Jesus said, guys, are you being intentional about growing in these two commandments? Are you making a decision? I'm going to love God more today than I did yesterday. We're striving together. Real work and effort expended in loving sacrificially. It is costly and it has worth. Okay, so we're caring for the body. We're reaching out to the lost and we're ministering to the hurt and the broken. You are the love of God in the world. If it doesn't come through you, it's not coming. You are the love of God in the world. There's this phrase from St. Francis of Assisi. He didn't say it, but it was said about him. That he walked the world as the pardon of God. That he was forgiveness embodied. I, I, I want that to be said of me. When I think of him, when I think of Josh, I feel God loving me. That should be true of the church, and it's not. We should be the most crazy, sacrificially loving people anywhere. People should be blown away by how much of ourselves we give to them on a regular basis. People should be saying, you people are nuts. How can you live this way? How can you be constantly giving as much as you're giving? Time, energy, emotion, and resource. Resource is important and it's necessary, but I'm telling you, when people actually sense that you care about them, it will change their world. When they hear it in your, your voice, when they see it in your face, when you show up, when no one else showed up. When you confront. You know, there's this thing that people do where they kind of, you know, they make jabs at themselves and it's really an invitation to for other people to say, that's not true about you. I like to take those moments and go over and above. Don't you dare say that again. What? <laughs> I love you. I don't like it when people talk that way about people that I love. I do that to my kids all the time. Whether they're saying something about themselves or someone else. I love to say things to them. You know, if one of my kids says something mean about the other, I just look at him and say, nobody talks about my son that way. And I'm saying it to my son. 
So I'm simultaneously telling them I love you like this, but I love them like this, and you better stop. We need to be confronting the world with how much we love them. Fiercely, violently, unashamedly, in their face. I care about you. Tell you what, it'll change people. You got to be intentional. So that's what we're trying to do. But here's something else. We're doing it together. We're doing it together. One of the things that will be, if you want to be rebuked at my church, there's a couple ways to, to get it done. Okay. Number one, is to speak badly about yourself. I will rebuke you. Number two, is to try and accomplish something on your own. I'll rebuke you for that too. Because just as important as anything that we would try and accomplish is that we're doing it together. And if we're not doing it together, we shouldn't be doing it. If this is a solo project and it's just one person in the church and everything's resting on that person, I am not okay with that. And I'll tell you, the thing is that that a lot of times the people that like to get things done like to do it alone because if I do it, I'll do it right. Right? How many of you feel that way sometimes? You know what? I'm just going to do it because they're going to screw it up anyway. Guess what? God, the one person who does everything right all the time, refuses to do anything by himself. So we should probably take a little bit from that, and we should invite other people to do it with us. Anytime anybody in my church, I don't care how phenomenally talented they are, decides to do something on their own, I get in their face about it. You should have taken a couple people with you. You should have had help with this. Not because you're not capable. I'm not saying you're not capable. And that's how most of those very capable people respond when I confront them about it. You should have had help with this. Is, is, what, are you saying I did it wrong? Not at all. You did a fantastic job. But you need to be training other people how to do just as good as you. And not only that, we're supposed to be doing this together. The only reason we do anything is so we do it together. This is, this is a statement that I want you to hear. I want you to hear this in your guts. God is more interested in your friendship than he is your servanthood. And we should feel the same way about each other. That it is more important that I'm doing something with you than if I'm doing something. And I know that that's another cultural against the grain statement. Because what is, what is the church always telling you? Get busy. Get out there and do something. Go do something for God. Go bear that fruit once again. There it is again. There again. Go bear fruit for the gospel. Oh, I just want to smack people. Understand. Ah, the medium is the message. Okay. Imagine how offensive it would be if I were to write on a gold bar, 
I care about poor people and throw it through their window. What? I wanted to deliver a message to you. <laughs> oh, you delivered a message, all right. One, you have money to throw away. And two, you don't care about my property. You delivered a message. The way you deliver a message is just as important as the message you deliver. And if we're not doing things together, we're delivering the wrong message. Because we're saying, love each other, but do it by yourself. That's why even if I had, well, I should, I don't, I worry, ah, bleh, bleh, okay, I'm trying to say this without being, you know what, forget it, I've been super offensive today anyway. Um, no, 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 what I'm saying is I'm just going to be offensive, I don't care. I have a problem with churches putting their messages out on the internet and places like that, because it allows people to access the message, and not the community. Now, I podcast my sermons and I podcast this class. So I'm kind of a hypocrite. But we should not be doing that. We should not be creating ways for people to avoid community while still remaining Christian. Not true. You can't be a Christian by yourself. Christianity is about becoming a part of a community. We don't do this work alone. We do it as a tribe. Jesus is working with us and through us by his spirit. God has chosen cooperation with other every single time. Every single time. And the kingdom is not the kingdom unless the kingdom is there and you together are the kingdom. Okay. You go till noon, right? Yeah, we got lots of time. Okay. What do you think about that statement? I'm just feeling a pause button from the Holy Spirit right now. Okay. What's going on? What are you guys? There's there's a subtext going on here. What's what's happening? What are you talking about? What's going on? <laughs> Why? It's just like. Like, I find myself, like, trying to, like, strive by success and, like, doing all these things that, like, build me a platform. Mm -hmm. But then, like, I forget that that's totally not what it's about at all. And then, like, I worry. I'm like, okay, well, am I, like, pieced together enough to, like, go to church and, like, serve? Like, that like, completely does not matter. Like, on Sunday morning, I was helping Tanya Joe with, like, the Glad Nations table. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so tired. Like, I can't even, like, form words right now and have a conversation. Like, I'm, I'm sucking at serving the kingdom. And that's not what it's about at all. Yeah. And I just, like, needed this reminder, and it just, like, it hit me really hard. And Thank you, Holy Spirit. Something that my spiritual is challenged by um, 
trying to be fake and being the same person I am at all places. Because I definitely struggled with that. Starting to work back at GameStop with the, the friends that I worked back in like high school mm. with, and started doing like crowds and stuff like that. And they're all like, a lot of the guys are like, we miss working with you, we miss hanging out with you, we miss your company. And a lot of me has been striving to be just who I am around them. Um, and I have a lot of conversations with them about God and what's going on in my life and stuff like that, but I still find myself going along with the same jokes and the same things that we did in the past. And words and things like that. And I just, part of me feels good about it, part of me doesn't. It's like, I still connect with them, still going, hey, you know, even I'm living my life for Christ, I'm still, you know, I'm still me. You still can recognize me. But also, I feel like that's really bad, too. That it's been a year, basically, since I've talked or seen any one of them, and they can still recognize That and I also just hate the generation of America, what's going on right now, and I hate missions and all that stuff like that, and the core of my spirit for just a lot of reasons. Um, and I know it's wrong, but I'm just like, I also have to practice that mindset of, I can't do it here, what can I do? Excuse me. How in the world am I going to do it somewhere else? See? But I think that's a real, real big thing for me, especially with. I'm always wondering, no matter where I'm going, what I'm doing. Because I can really passionately talk about how my I want I want people to see me or encounter me and be like, oh that guy's been with Jesus. But is that does that happen? People I don't know at all? You know, the times and places where I haven't had time to put on my pastor face? Would people say, yeah, that guy's different when I'm not making an effort to be? That's that's a question, man, and it haunts me. I want I want it to be. I want to be completely authentic through and through, becoming like Jesus. Obviously, I'm not exactly like Jesus yet. But becoming like Jesus in every aspect of who I am. And then we run into questions like what's holy and what's not. Because there's a difference between Christian culture and being a follower of Jesus. And there are ways and and affectations that I put on, masks that I put on to align with Christian culture that I don't necessarily feel like are included in being a follower of Jesus. But I do that because I don't want to offend anyone. And I talk about being offensive, and I do think being offensive is a tool to use. But I also don't think, I don't think that we should be offensive all the time. I think that there's, that there are specific things that Jesus chose to be offensive about. 
And then there are many other things where he didn't. For instance, think about the woman who, uh, the woman with the issue of blood, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, this woman, Jesus is in the crowd, and this woman pushes through the crowd in a secret way and just grabs the hem of Jesus' garment because she knows if she touches the hem of his garment, she'll be healed. Do you know that by doing that, she was making Jesus ceremonially unclean? That she couldn't just walk up to Jesus and ask him to touch her because if he had, he would have had to, you know, be been... Because her issue was she had literally been on her period for seven years. That's what was going on with her. That's what it means to have an issue of blood. Okay? She had been bleeding for seven years. There was something wrong with her internally. Okay? And the doctors, etc. I know, and I'm just trying to be honest with you. You may not, have you ever, how many of you knew that? How many of you actually knew that that's what that was? Okay, good. That's what was going on with her. And women, in, according to Jewish law, women in that, during that time, have to stay secluded and away from people and whatever. I know, I know. Just, they didn't have the technology that we have now or the understanding of how the female body works. Okay, so let's just relax a little bit. There's a whole lot of other cultural issues that you guys would be like, excuse me? Okay, <laughs> this was 2,000 years ago. Things were very different, right? I mean, people, women in Jesus. Jesus was incredibly offensive to men about, his, about the way that he treated women. Because he treated them like human beings. And that is not how women were treated at this time. Women were treated as property. You need to understand, Jesus did, Jesus, Jesus affirmed the identity of women and he saw them as beautiful, wonderful daughters of the living God. But that is not how even the disciples felt about women. Now, hopefully their opinion of women changed over time as they spent time with Jesus. But when they started, that is not how they felt about women. Okay, for instance, I want to just give you a for instance, okay? They walked into, I've just got stirring all this feminist stuff up. <laughs> I love it. Okay, they walk into Peter's house, okay? Peter's mother-in-law is there, and she's sick, right? She's sick. And Jesus, Jesus healed her. What does she do? She gets up and makes dinner. I'm just saying. That's what happened, Okay. I'm glad you're healed. Make me a sandwich. Okay? That's, that's, that's what happened. God, I mean, how did we even get here? Okay. Any, anyone that came in contact with a woman during her time of the month would have been ceremonially unclean. They would have had to go through a, a, a cleansing process. Okay? And, and when she walked up to Jesus and she grabbed the hem of his garment, she was making him ceremonially unclean and she knew it. All right. Did and she expected she fully that's why she did it in secret. She wanted healing, but she didn't want to offend him. So when he says who touched me, she was probably scared to death. <gasps> he knows I made him unclean. He knows. Now Jesus was using that opportunity to affirm her and to raise her up. And to say, not only are you healed, honey, but you're a demonstration of the power of faith. And you're not unclean. You're holy. Okay, 
for seven years she had she had been unclean and no one nothing anyone did could help her and she comes into contact with Jesus one time and not only is she healed from her affliction but that whole idea of her uncleanliness is removed from her by the eyes of Jesus and the words that he spoke to her your faith has healed you all of a sudden, that miracle becomes about a whole lot more than just a lady who was sick and now is not sick anymore. And here's Jesus living in his culture. But if Jesus had not wanted to offend anyone, he wouldn't have said anything to her. Right? Because if there were Pharisees in the crowd... Then they're going to go, ooh, what if she touched me? And, well, Jesus is ceremonially unclean now, so he obviously has to go get washed up. They would have totally missed the fact that this woman was sick and now she's not. They would have missed that completely. And Jesus is like, I don't care that they're going to be offended. This daughter of mine needs to hear something from me. And I, the whole world can be offended because I'm going to love this lady. Okay. And not only that, but he was demonstrating at the same moment to anyone that was listening and was offended by the fact that this woman had touched him that their offense was wrong because it didn't connect with the love of this woman. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay. Jesus was always communicating on 12 levels at once. Always. He only had three years. I mean, you know, you got to get it in. <laughs> so Jesus was being incredibly offensive in that moment. But not because he just wanted to tick people off. He was being offensive because he wanted this, this lady to know that she loved, that he loved her and that things were different. Not And that she wasn't unclean after all, that she was holy and Here's Jesus, the rabbi, the one everybody wants his attention, speaking this to her in that moment. Yeah, so it's hard for me to live, because I'm living in two cultures and I don't agree with either one of them. I'm living in the Christian culture, the Christian subculture, and I hate it, I despise it. And I want to tear it down and rip it to shreds. And I want to laugh at it and stomp on its ashes. That's what I want to do. And then I'm living, I'm, I'm serious, uh, because the Christian culture does not reflect Jesus. If Christian culture really reflected Jesus, I would be all for it. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It reflects American civil religion and Western mindsets with a sprinkling of grace. And it's ugly. And I just want to kick it can't stand it. I want to burn it to the ground. <laughs> not the Vatican. I'm not talking about the Vatican. And I'm not going to set. I'm not going to set any buildings on fire because that's not the point. And I'm not V for Vendetta. Okay. This is this is about living in a way that's contrary. So I have to. I, I believe it is my mission from the Holy Spirit to live contrary to the Christian culture and contrary to, it, to American culture all at once. And finding a ground, finding a place in the middle of those 
It's hard. It's hard. And anytime I become aware of ways that I am subconsciously harmonizing with one of those two cultures, I get, I just makes me sick to my stomach. Okay. Like what I just said about putting stuff out on the internet, because then you can access ministry, but not community. Okay. And I realized that I'm doing the same thing and you want to know why I'm probably doing it. Cause I'm probably trying to build a platform for myself. It's not probably, if you asked me, I would tell you it's so that people that can't come to the church or that, you know, can, you know, can still be ministered to. But the truth is, in my ugly darkness, it's probably that I just like the sound of my own voice. Is that gross? That is gross. It's gross. It makes me want to puke. Welcome to my world. I guess that brings up a lot of the issues of swearing in the church and about people and all that stuff. Because I'm in a people who are Christian and going to America and some that are like, you know, it doesn't say anything about you can't swear. We've got the conversation about swearing mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But for me, I guess the reason that I don't want to stop swearing is because it's just hard. It's a lot easier to just say the words that I want to say, and like because I I have to purposefully make the decision not say it. Like I have to be intentional about words, and it's just a whole lot easier not to focus on that, or I can try to derive attention away from it for some other reason. But I always tell people I only cuss when it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it is. Yeah. And he's like, Abby and I were talking because we were like, sometimes there's just no other word than, you know, the word that you, that you want to say. All right. <laughs> That's so stupid. <laughs> One of the questions on my, on my family feud questionnaire was your, your favorite Christian cuss word was my. Was my one of the questions? Shoot one. Shoot. Oh darn it! Gosh darn it! Gosh diddly darn it! Here let's 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 talk about swearing for a minute. Let's do it. Let's do it. I, we got we've we've got we got ten minutes. Let's talk about swearing. Uh, uh, here's my question for you. Okay. What makes one word worse than another? <laughs> Brown noser. Okay. <laughs> no, that's actually really true, though. That's that's really true. It's yeah, culture. Culture. Say say what you're. Say again. Okay. That's true. Because if we're talking about hell the place, that's fine. But if we're saying what the hell, that's not fine. 
right? Doesn't make any sense. Did that offend anyone? No. Who was that? All right. What? Apparently, this isn't Yeah, when I was a kid, that was really bad, but now. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the culture is definitely shifting on what words are acceptable. Okay. Let me tell you what the Bible would say about what makes one word worse than another. Okay. And it's, it's what you intend when you speak it. So in other words, completely normal, acceptable words can be curse words if you intend them as curse words. You can use completely safe G-rated words to curse. If you are making someone else feel small by what you say, you're cursing. Period. And you don't ever have to say, you don't ever have to say any of those words that we're not allowed to say. You don't have to say them to curse. You don't. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. It's about what's in here. I'll tell you what, I have heard Christians destroy people with their words. And they never said one bad word the whole time. Not one of those four little words was in there. But they were cursing. Absolutely they were cursing. And is it possible to use one of those forbidden words and not be sinning? Of course it is. Of course it is. Does that mean you should? No, you probably shouldn't. Why? One, it makes you sound like an idiot. <laughs> Let's just go there first. When I hear someone cuss at me, I immediately form an opinion about them that they're not as intelligent as I thought they were. Jim Gaffigan, one of my favorite comedians in the world, <laughs> I heard him say, if, if a joke has to have a curse word in it to be funny then I'm not done writing it. I just need to think a little harder about it, and I'll be able to do it in a way that's going to be funny without the curse word. And I said, thank you. Because it's true. I'm sorry. You look at people who do not respect themselves and do not respect others, and those are the kind of words that they use, and it's every other word. And I have no, I have no respect for that. You sound like an idiot. Stop. Stop. Well, so are you going to go to hell if you smash your hand, you know, your thumb with a hammer and a word comes out that you wouldn't normally use? No. Give me a break. Relax. And do I cuss from time to time just because I think it's funny sometimes? I do. <laughs> but it depends on the crowd that I'm in. I'm not going to do that in front of my kids. I'm not going to do that at church. <laughs> and I'm not going to do that in a crowd where there's someone there that it would ruin my witness for them. I'm not going to do that. But I'll tell you when I will do it. 
if I'm talking to somebody about the love of Jesus and they're thinking of me as holier than them, I might cuss at them. (laughs) (laughs) Serious though, because that's going to pull me out of whatever holy pedestal they put me on. And it's going to make me feel like, okay, I know a pastor who had made it his habit every Monday night to go and he was going to be at a bar every Monday night and he was going to be there, but he had, he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to drink alcohol, so he never drank alcohol. When he was there, he would just have a Coke. And he was getting to know people, and he was loving on people that were completely out of his church culture. And, and I think that's awesome. But there was this one table, this one group of guys that was there every, every Monday night that he never was able to really get to know. Until one day he was there, and he just decided he was going to order a beer. So he ordered a beer from the thing, and he was drinking a beer. And one of those guys came over and said, what are you doing drinking that beer? And he said, I wanted a beer. So you never drink beer. He said, Well, you know, I'm you know, I'm driving and everything. I you know, I just wouldn't normally besides I don't really like beer very much. He said, Let me ask you a question. You've not spoken to me one time and I've been coming to this bar for a year. And you're always here. Why didn't you talk to me before now? He said, Because how can you trust a guy that doesn't drink beer? <laughs> <laughs> That's really literally what he said. Jesus went to places and talked to people that his church culture told him not to talk to and not to go to. He went there to meet those people. He didn't go there because I can do whatever I want. The grace of God is fair. It was not anything about that. And so if you're ever doing something the church culture would say is not okay, specifically because church culture says it's not okay and I'm free and they can't tell me what to do, you're wrong. But if there is someone there that can only be loved by you going there and doing that, there's a difference. And that's what I'm talking about when I say I have to live halfway between church culture and American culture. And I have to say, I, I, ready for a big word? I repudiate them both. Means I will have nothing to do with either one of them. I hate them both. I hate American Christian culture and I hate American culture because both of them are ugly. Neither one of them looks anything like Jesus. And I just want to be like Jesus. And I'm not better than them. I'm not better than them. And in fact, the reason I hate them the most is because it's so easy for me to live either one of those ways. It is easier for me to live like a normal American. It is really, really easy for me to live like a normal Christian. Because I grew up in this. And it's easy for me. But if I love Jesus, there are things in both of those cultures that are despicable. And I won't have anything to do with them. When I'm at my best, I won't have anything to do with them. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be holy. We want to be like you.
when you crashed into the church culture of your day, they wondered if you were demon-possessed. Sinners were comfortable around you. And church people were scared of you. And the political power of that day couldn't put up with you. They killed you. Teach us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I love you guys.